Welcome to the Black Theater History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theater's African-American history makers. I'm KB Sane. This Live from BTN podcast episode is a special one, made possible by the Black Theater Network, Eric J. Little, and Joe and Christopher at Joe Car Media. This recording of our conversation was captured during a judge's break in the Black Theater Network's student monologue competition. Our guest, Keith Arthur Bolden, graciously agreed to this live interview. Keith Arthur Bolden is a multi-talented artist who has been featured in some of the hottest shows on many screens. Uh, you might know Lovecraft Country, Cobra Kai, Black Lightning, Terra Lake Drive, Jungle Cruise, Miss Pat Show, and recently in the movie Till. He is a tri-coastal actor and director who currently calls Atlanta his home, where he is the professor of theater at Spelman College. We'll segue here into our conversation. Hello, everyone. Good evening, everyone. My, uh, funny saying this in front of a live room, our guest tonight uh, is actor extraordinaire, hashtag the acting professor, uh, Keith Arthur Bolden. I would love to start, uh, we didn't have the luxury of having your bio read. Mm -hmm. Would you give us just a little bit of background? Our goal here this evening is to share with all of you, future professionals, <laughs> and all of you, current and future professionals, uh, the story of one very successful DTN family member's career in this field, uh, to talk to him a little bit about his experiences, uh, and to, to see where that goes. This is, is our gift for you. It really is. Um, you guys have offered us a great deal. Y'all back there have offered us a great deal this week, um, and we are very thankful for you. So could you give us just a, a little bit of yeah. background? Yeah. His, his bio is long, IMDb, you can just, he, he's out there. Google me! <laughs> Woody King Jr. was the very first person to ever agree to be on the Black Theater History Podcast, and when I sat down with him to begin with, I explained the purpose of this as an educational resource, and he said, KB, those kids can just Google me. <laughs> I won't say that. Woody King Jr. But I will say that one of the most embarrassing things that can happen to an actor is you tell someone you're an actor because people don't, you, people have kind of a, a broad sense of what that is and that it's fun. And so they say, well, what have I seen you in? And then I have to go through my resume. And your tastes are not what I do. Mm. So I've gone through 10 credits and you don't watch TV. <laughs> so now I'm embarrassed. You could have just Googled. So, um, but I know it's not this crowd. Hi. Um, uh, Could you talk to us about uh, the, the early part of your career? What that early. was, what, what your early inspiration I'm not an elder yet, I'm still young. Um, still, yes, I, I'm from Los Angeles, California, born and raised. Uh, Englewood specifically. Um, grew up there, not exposed to the arts at all. Uh, but in, uh, and I've said this on a few interviews, I inherently knew that I wanted to be an entertainer. Um, when I was growing up, uh, there was an impressionist named Rich Little. He used to do Ronald Reagan, John Wayne, all these things. And I used to do Rich Little. I used to, I used to do John Wayne. But you know, a Negro's not going to get hired to do John Wayne. But there, was no, there were no black impressionists, right? Because there weren't enough of us to impersonate. You didn't see enough representation out there. So I, that went away. I started drawing. Uh, I drew stuff from my mother and father. Nobody, 
responded to. I used to take five pots and pans to drum. Nobody put that stuff away. We don't want that in the house. I want to take tap dance classes. Blah, blah, blah. I never saw a play, but I wrote a play when I was eight years old. I wrote a play about the birth of Christ. We were really big in church, non-denomination. I'm still a believer, but not practicing. But I'm a believer, right? So I wrote this play. I cast my cousins. We made costumes. We had towels on the head, the belts around the head to be shepherds. I, I mean, I did this thing. We had two performances. There was one performance. It was about 15, 20 minutes long. All the black family members in my, you know, they were late. So they wanted us to do it again. So we had a command performance. <laughs> we did it, y'all. Not one person in my family said, this kid is interested in something. We should put him in something. It just stopped. And at that point, after eight or nine years of reaching out to something I knew that was in me, I just stopped. And so and it wasn't until college where Fresno State, I went to Fresno State, Fresno hired their first African-American professor in theater, Thomas Witt Ellis. Mm -hmm. He came around to the university one-on-one classes to recruit people to do the Color Museum. I'm young. I didn't know nobody wanted to be popular. I said, I'll audition for that. That sounds like fun. I was done. I, I, I subsequently changed my major to theater. Didn't know what that meant. I just knew I had fun doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for theater, it wasn't, I'm a Catholic too. Uh, if it wasn't for those things, I probably wouldn't have graduated because school is not my thing. Hard to believe I'm a professor now. I'm a professor teaching something that I really love. And it wasn't until I graduated from grad school in Illinois in 2001, I did children's theater at Ron Hines. Ron Hines was one of the first jobs I had at St. Louis Black right after grad school. And my wife and I, we were girlfriend, boyfriend at the time, we toured together. And so it wasn't until I moved to New York in 04, three years later, that I really figured out what it meant to be a professional actor. The New York taught me a grind that I had never had before. When I first got to New York, I mapped out the subway. I mapped out all the agencies I wanted to go to. And I hand-walked my hand shot resume to everybody because I never knew who I might run into. I didn't run into anybody. <laughs> but I did learn the city. I didn't have to figure things out. I learned the subway system in two days. I had been coming to New York, but I never, I never ingratiated myself with the system. And so I, I just got to New York, and you go to New York to not live in New York. You, as an actor, you move to New York to audition regional theaters. So I was out of town for six months mm -hmm. out of the year. Um, and TV and film eluded me for a long time until I moved to Atlanta. So that's my early career. Well, I'm wondering about that, uh, that transition and, and that time from the stage to the screen mm. and back and forth and back and forth and mm. back and forth mm. in your career. Um, what is it What is it for you to balance all those things simultaneously? Um, I don't sleep a lot. Um, but I'm happy not sleeping because I'm doing what I want to do. I operate on very little sleep. And so people who want to be in my station or where I am, I say, well, just be prepared to not sleep and enjoy life. You have to wake up in the morning, glass half full, and say I'm above ground, and get busy with living. Because if you're not, there are other people out there who are working to take that spot. So for me, I might not be the most talented or nor the best looking in the room, but nobody is going to outwork me or outpassion me. Nobody. Nobody. You can see my energy around this conference. Nobody's going to outknow people than me. 
it's not something I, I brag about. I'm, I'm not bragging about. It's just who I am. My mother was this. So I'm honoring my mother every day because she, she's not alive to see. She's not alive to see all the blessings that I have. She, she didn't see my, her, my youngest son. She, had, she, she didn't see him. She was gone before he, he came. She died three months before he was born. Um, so I honor my mother every day by getting up and getting to the business of living. <laughs> so, so the transition for me is funny. So KB's direct. I'm in a reading tonight. You want to see? So when uh, Dr. Foster's reading, KB's directing. Uh, KB, <laughs> I've been doing TV for a while. I haven't been on stage for a minute. So I, I, I said, oh, I'm doing my, my TV voice. I'm sorry, I'm not Mike. I have to speak up a bit. Uh, but I try to, st- for me, theater is the great legitimizer, right? Um, nothing against TV film actors. I do it. It's great. It can pay well. Um, it, it cannot pay well. You can be treated not well. You can be treated supremely great. I was I just shot Sacrifice with Kenny Leon directing an episode in New Orleans. It was the best treatment I got on a set, and I truly believe that's because Kenny comes from theater. Mm-hmm. I truly believe. I think he advocated for me in that way. Um, but as I go back and forth uh, through theater, film, TV, acting, and directing, um, I don't know how I juggle it, KB. It's, I'm curious because I only direct the theater, right? So that's only my yeah. experience. And I want, and, and uh, Keith is both an actor and a director. Yeah, I'm getting ready to direct Color Museum. Right? <laughs> so, quick look, Color Museum. Yeah. So Color Museum was the first play I did in school. It was the last play I did in school. When I first did Color Museum, I was a freshman. They had this guy, it's beautiful. And let me tell you, I came from my house. Uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of tolerance for a lot of things in my home. Mm-hmm. Christian people, I'll say that. And so when I got to college, I went to Fresno State so that I could learn how to deal with white folks. And I got to I got to campus and saw that it was a microcosm of what the world really is. Um, so I had never really been truly intimate in, in conversation with anybody who's a homosexual. So Miss Ross was played by this guy named Jonathan. He dropped out of the play. Beautiful. Six... Six six brother. I mean he was a football player but the most graceful dancer. I mean the most graceful dancer. And and it was <laughs> it was a contradiction to me. I didn't understand how this big brawling man could be so beautiful and graceful. Um he had to drop out of the play for personal reason, but I was approached about playing Miss Raj. There's no way in the world I could do that. There's no way in the world I could bring, have my dad come up and see me do that mm-hmm. show. There's no, I didn't have the capacity in me to inhabit that character or embody that character. Fast forward to my last year in grad school. That's the only role I wanted to play. Because theater taught me how to be tolerant, to, not tolerate, but to be accepting. And that... that my story is not the only story to tell. Mm-hmm. And theater, theater gave me my humanity and helped me see the humanity in other people. And I am forever grateful to this community and George C. Wolf mm-hmm. because I'm able to actually gauge what I was and who I am now. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, I, Did I answer your question? And. Um, and and. <laughs> I, I think I, I want to circle back though because I'm curious 
the, the field, and I say that in air quotes with a capital F, meaning the, the full breadth of, of acting and directing uh, across industries. Mm -hmm. What is the reality of taking a three-week, four-week, six-week directing play, directing musical, being in play, being in musical, whatever this thing to take, or wanting to take, or being offered the opportunity yeah. to then need to do two or three or four days on set somewhere? Yeah, well, the thing of when I, when I direct, I teach at Spelman too. I'm a tenure professor, an associate professor of theater at Spelman College. And so, so that's the other job, right? So whenever I'm directing out of town, I, I fly home once a week to teach my classes that I usually give them outside class assignment. I teach two days a week. And I do, and, and, and I'll do it. And that's why I say I don't sleep. But that's my commitment to my students and my job. I, I don't want anybody to ever say I don't show up. Because I, I show up. Uh, Michelle Wilson gave me the biggest compliment the other day. She said, Keith, you just show up for people. You show up for opening nights, you just show up, you support in a way. And so I, I, I really, I'm, I, I'm honored by that. And so um, sometimes I may have to ask for grace if I have to miss a rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And usually people are okay with that. But I try not to audition for things that I'm not available for. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the things I have in my, uh, that I have going on are flexible, but there are other things that aren't. And so I try to be honest and open about that. Don't, don't tell people that you're open and available if you're not. Mm -hmm. Just don't. Be honest about your conflicts, because they'll probably work around your conflicts. But if you say you have no conflicts, and all of a sudden you do, then they can't trust you. They can't trust you with, with showing up on time. They can't trust you with the words. They can't trust you to be collegial on set. So at least be honest about your time and your commitment. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a question? You did. You did. Okay. I was going to take that into a bigger direction yeah. and uh, talk about what it really is to be a college professor, uh, to be a professional actor and a professional director for both stage and screen, to be a father. And when, when Keith says that he shows up, I called him a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. telling him that John had this show. I had already worked on it. I thought it is a great script. I'm really excited about it, and I really wanted to work with Keith in this role. He said, "All right, I'm gonna call you back later." Taking his sons from the barber shop <laughs> to, the, to get some dinner on the way, he's on the phone talking about what we really needed, making sure that he could accommodate that, that he could be here and be present for us. Um, and then was back in school the next day. Right? Like, and so I see this constantly happening. And, then, and there are so many of us in this room that are educator day jobs, passionate about teaching, passionate about raising up this next generation in this future, but then also trying to work, also trying to have our lives. I wonder if you have not just advice for the young folks, but advice for all of us who are living this world in this balance. It, yeah. What has worked for you and what are you still working on? I'm working on, uh, I'm always working on being better, you know, there's always room for improvement, I'm a, and I'm a man in a world that's changing, and I grew up a certain way, and I still have unconscious bias, and I just try to keep them in check, uh, and I think the more honest you can be about that, the better you will be, uh, you know, Avenue Q, everybody's a little bit racist, right, I think everybody's a little bit something, they are, but if you, if you try to deny that, then you just deny a part of who you are, you can... You can adjust who you are, you can grow, but if you try to deny it, then it's just, you know. Um, I, I think that it's really important to prepare yourself uh, for people. Mm. 
And let me say, let me let me go a little deeper. People are people. They just are. And I think if you try to meet people where they are, it's better than canceling them. It's better than canceling them. It's better than canceling people if you meet people where they are. Canceling people is just like sweeping dirt, uh, just moving it out of the way. Not even under the rug. You're just moving it out of the way to get out of your way to make you more comfortable. But that problem is still there. You still have to deal with that problem. So we need to rehabilitate people, love on people. I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be we are the world or, you know, let's go march and sing civil rights songs. I'm, what I'm saying is that those people that we cancel, they just find other places to be secretive about the work that they're doing against us. Mm-hmm. It's better to make them allies than to make than to keep them as enemies or keep them at bay. That's just my opinion. You don't have to live your life like me, but that's just I embrace people uh, until I find out that they're not embraceable anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think dealing in these. Uh, college spaces. Um, I won't be as candid as I can be, but what I will say is that um, uh, every skin folk is not kin folk, you know, uh, and just because we wear the same skin doesn't mean that they're, they have the same belief system or values as you. So meet them where they are too, and, and, and maybe it's time for them to move out of the way to make space for you, and not your agenda, but your aesthetic, uh, the things that you and your cohort are passionate about. Um, there's something, there's something about an old guard who is unwilling to, to, to loosen the reins to make room for new ideas and new passions. Uh, and, and, and we just have to make space for people, y'all. Like, I'm, I'm 49, right? I'll be, I don't want to do the things that I was doing 15 years ago. I don't have the energy. I want to be able to fund the shit that y'all want to do. So can I cuss? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I tell my students that's filming all the time. I said, the revolution is a young person's game. I can't be on the front lines. I got a house, kids, grandkids. But guess what? I can send you some money. I can send some money for the placards, for the, for the marches, for the bus trip. I can fund the revolution. I just can't be on the front lines with you. And so... We have to remember that Dr. King and Malcolm and them, they weren't even 40. They were like 20, in their 20s, they were doing the thing. It's a young person's game, so I don't, it's a young people in the room, I don't know what y'all waiting for. I know y'all doing it. I know y'all doing it. I'm not trying to condemn it. I know you're doing it. We gotta have a plan in place for the, for the revolution, though. Like, I, I have some students who've complained about things, right? And I say to them, I'm not getting off topic, you so on. And I say to them, a student accused me of not showing up. This student sent me an email at 3 o'clock in the morning. I read it at 7. We were meeting by noon. I pulled over and talked to this student the week before for 30 minutes because they were having a crisis. On my own time. I told this student, I said, to me, this is showing up. I, you know, I have a career, I got family, I got kids. I'm, this is showing up. But if this doesn't resonate with you as showing up, I need you to tell me what it is so that I can serve your generation better. Show me how you want me to show up. That person could not answer the question. So for me, what resonated with me is that you are equipped to complain and to bring up problems, but you have no resolution. You have no plan. What's the plan? I will, I will, I will meet you there. Tell me where you want me to meet you. Because I told you where to meet me when you were complaining I didn't show up. I said, meet me downstairs in Manly at 12 o'clock and we can talk. And they, that person didn't do that. Anyway, did I answer your question? I 
always ask that. And I mean, and I'm going to just yes and that because I see all you young people nodding, and I and I see, and I personally recognize that, uh, you know, these feet can't march as far as they used to. But these feet uh, have hold on to a body that holds the keys to a theater. And if we heard anything from our colleagues this morning, it's that we know that telling stories is part of the revolution. Mm. And, mm. and so I, I just want to yes and everything you just said and offer all of you storytellers in this room, story supporters in this room, remember that those of us who are not by your side all the time can be behind you, can be under you, lifting you up. And so I just, we had this conversation a little bit earlier, so I just want to yes and that and raise up those ideas and, and remind you all how this fits together in our complete story today. You know it's great too? To take inventory of who's next to you, you know? Um, and be kind to people. Quick story. So I was on a plane coming from, my wife, my wife and I went to New York this past week. We'd never done something before. We went to New York just to see plays. We'd never done it before. We lived in New York and never saw plays. <laughs> saw five plays. Well, saw, saw one play twice. Saw Fat Ham twice. Uh, I know. play. <laughs> so, so on the plane to New York, there was this woman, elderly woman, getting on the plane with her daughter, middle-aged daughter, head on mask, couldn't tell who they were. But I, read, I saw her, and I was like, oh, she's struggling a bit, and they put her, her bag in a special place, and when we got off the plane, the lady forgot the bag, and the flight attendant was running to catch up with her, the Louis Vuitton bag. I just remembered this. So I go, I go to New Orleans, and she sacrificed on the plane, from New Orleans to Atlanta was this same couple. And I said, oh, I remember you all. Cool, would you like my seat? Would you sit next to your mother? And she said, oh, thank you so much. At the end of the flight, her mother went to the bathroom. I got to talk to her. And she said, um, she said thank you so much for giving me this seat. I said, no problem. I said, so, so what do you do? What do you, where, where, where are you guys to? This, I'm my mama's child. I'll talk to everybody. Oh, we're going, to, we're going to Florida. I have a house down there. I said, oh, okay. If I live in New York, I said, I'm from L.A. Oh, I have a place in L.A. too. I, I spent my time. I said, oh, okay, what do you do? Oh, I'm an actor and director. I said, really? What's your name? Oh, my name is Robin. I said, what's your last name? I'm going to look you up. She goes, mask on. Gibbons. Yeah. It's a pleasure to meet you, young lady. <laughs> so glad I was an asshole. I say that to say, you never know who's sitting next to you. Mm -hmm. um, one of Dominique's good friends, Nayale, Nayale Ali, came here today with her. She had a pink dress. I couldn't miss her. Pink dress, choppy sister. Shoes. Shoes. Shoes, right? Fierce, right? She's on P Valley, right? So I was on her Facebook last night just looking. Cause I'm, I'm, we friends from New York back in the day. And it was like a potpourri of who's who in, on TV right now. Nico was in the pictures. Uh, Don was in the pictures. Katori Hall was in the picture. Benton Green was in the pictures. And these were all people that were struggling in New York when we all lived there back in 04 to 07 until I moved out of New York. And now they're TV regulars, showrunners. Don and Katori were actors when I lived mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. Right? So you never know where people are going to end up. Right? That could be, he could be a network executive. She could be a network executive. Don't be mean to them if they won now. <laughs> I think that'll segue into, um, I'll, I'll just ask two more questions. Uh, in, in this world, mm. where we never know who else is in the room, and we never know, sometimes we don't even know with whom we have the gig, 
right? Like if, if an artistic director is casting the show for you and you just walked in because you've agreed to it or whatever, you, you never know who's there. I'm curious with whom you have found yourself in the room that has surprised you and from whom you have learned a lesson that you carry with you. Surprise me. Um, wow. Or someone from whom you were surprised to learn such a valuable lesson. I like kind people. So when I when I meet when I work with celebrities or meet celebrities and they're kind, it goes against everything you've heard about them. So Paula Patton, who was much prettier in person, if you can believe that, so lovely, which made her more beautiful when I worked on Sacrifice recently. Patrick Wilson from The Conjuring, lovely man, Carnegie Mellon trained, just like Shante, lovely man, a theater guy, the singer, music man is one of his favorite shows. I mean, we, I, I'm just amazed at people who, who have reached a status and who are still humble. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives me hope because, uh, but I, I really think that's theater people though. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I think theater people, we teach people how to treat people. Don't say it today. I, we, we are a reflection of who we, we, society looks at us, looks at our art, and they decide what, how they should move throughout the day or throughout the world. Uh, it's really, really, uh, representation is really strong, and not just representation of, of who we are as individual culturally, but who we are as humans. It really, theater goers, theater makers really teach people how to treat people. I really, so, so, I was in Chicago, my wife and I, we did a tour, our first job out of school. We weren't even together, they didn't know we were dating. I auditioned, she, she booked a job. I said, oh, you booked a job, where are you working at? Time Step Players out of Chicago. I said, oh, okay. Me being me, I read up Time Step Players. I said, y'all still hiring? Oh yeah, audition. I auditioned, the guy dropped out of the show she was in. I got in it, it was her and I in a car for two and a half months. We put 30,000 miles on a car in two and a half months. It's the foundation of our relationship. What was the show? The show was called A Reading Odyssey. It was based on Homer's Odyssey. Uh, so she played a bunch of characters. She, her, her go-to character is this little Jew, white Jewish woman. I don't know what it is, why. But uh, uh, um, so um, we did that. And she had a D-Day. Okay, in August, we are done. You know, just two, I'm going to New York, I'm going to be a star. She got a job at St. Louis Black Rep in their touring company, professional touring company. And uh, she said, I think I'm going to go there for a year and do that. I said, oh, for real? Okay. St. Louis Black Rep? Okay. I sent my resume to the St. Louis Black Rep because I was in love. But I had a job. I had a job. Now, we, due day came, D day came for us to break up. Uh, I got an apartment in Chicago. I moved in. I didn't even stay there that night. Stayed with her and her dad in Evanston, and then I went to Child's Play for my first day of work. Child's Play company in, in Chicago. Had a great day, great day. We're standing outside, standing in line to sign our contracts. I'm third in line. I get a call on my next telephone <laughs> <laughs> from Yvette Puckett. That's the St. Louis Black Rep, offering me a job without even having seen an audition. Based on my uh, recommendation from Kathy Perkins, who was one of my professors at Illinois, 
and and and, and my my resume is pretty cool. And so I said, so I went into the to the room, and uh, there was this black this, uh, associate artistic director, the black guy, this white woman, and another person. I said, hey, I've had a wonderful day here today. Well, I told I told Yvette, I said, hey, can I have a few minutes to call you back? I, I can think about it. So I go in. Say, hey, I had a lovely day here today. It's been great. I said, but um, I'm in love with this girl, and and uh, she got a job in St. Louis. They just called me and offered me the job. I can't remember his brother's name. I gotta look it up. He took my contract. He said, go get her. And he did. Much to her chagrin, I did. I said, hey, I'm coming to St. Louis. You doing what? We broke up, but it turned out to be great. So, so, uh, so we're still. So that was, uh, yeah, we 15 years in uh, September. We've been married. So. Peter, Peter did it. Peter did it. Well, I first of all, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your energy and your talent. And you're going to continue to share his talent throughout the evening. Please come see him perform and flip in this evening. Um, but there, there's a conversation that uh, I inherited from Carlton Millet here at BTN, um, which is the dialogue about what begin, what belongs in the capital B, capital C, black canon. Uh, and what constitutes that. And so I end every episode of the podcast by asking my guests what one play, and I know, I know, but what one play do you think belongs in the black camp? Definitely, but I really, truly believe that it's a raising of the sun. It's, uh, I, think it's, I think it's the greatest American play. I mean, August Wilson is my man. I think Lorraine Hasbury... She was put on this earth to make that play because she was gone after, you know. And you never can decide. Depends on who you're looking at, who you're talking to, whose play that is, right? Mm. That's the beauty of it because everybody's fighting for something. Travis is fighting for something. Mama's fighting for something. Ruth is fighting for something. It's it's all about perspective. And it's a director's dream to direct that play because you can direct it from whatever vantage point you want it. People don't, people, you know what, people won't delve into Travis, but Travis had a point of view. Travis sleeping on the couch. Right? He listening to arguing. He got to hear sex in the, in, in, in the, in the pantry. And he's disturbed. He got to go out here and kill rats. To get money. At the, Travis, Travis the hustler. He's the first hustler. I don't know if I do that perspective. I just thought for comedic effect it might be funny. Uh, but 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 truly, uh, I, I believe that that her and and, uh, and Lloyd were were paired together um, to change the dynamic of theater, and they've done just that. And we are beneficiaries of that that conjoining, that meeting. Yeah. I know you're not alone thinking that. Am I? No. I, we can hear the agreement. <laughs> I've never directed a really, really, really. Eileen, I really, Ron, I really, really want to direct a Raisin of the Sun. I say often on this podcast, what you from your words to the internet's ears. Yes, internet. <laughs> yeah, thank y'all. And thank you on that. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you.
That was our interview with hashtag the acting professor, actor and director Keith Arthur Bolden. You can find a link to the Bolden Entertainment website and to Keith's acting reel on our website at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. You'll find information about the Black Theater Network student monologue competition there as well. This is the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions and edited by Jeremiah Turner. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be purchased via any platform where excellent music is sold. The Black Theater History Podcast is sponsored in part by the Shepherd University Foundation. Information about podcast sponsorship and episode commissions is also available on our website. Do subscribe to the Black Theater History Podcast on Audible, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and whatever other streaming services you use. And please do leave us a review. Your feedback will help the podcast reach other folks who don't yet know about us. The Black Theater History Podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please feel free to use this material accordingly. Credit should be recognized as the Black Theater History Podcast. Educators who wish to use the podcast in their classes can link directly to episodes at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. Theater is spelled with an R-E. And thank you to all of you, our listeners. Special thanks to Joe Carr Media and Shepherd University, and a special thank you to my friends and colleagues at the Black Theater Network. We're all in this together, friends, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening.